You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The amount of time between horrible campaigns and ones that aren't as bad is shrinking because bad guys are learning from each other and if there's one method that works better than others to get either the reaction you want or the profit that you want, that's the avenue being pursued. Joining us this week are Craig Williams and Matt Olney from Cisco Talos. We're discussing their NotPetya and Olympic Destroyer research. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. You know, I was glad that we're taking the steps to hold people accountable. I mean, obviously, charging someone with a crime is not going to suddenly stop these type of actions. That's Craig Williams. But I think if we don't start holding folks responsible, if we don't start making sure that we're drawing those lines in the sand, that when crossed, there will be repercussions, it's going to get even more out of hand. So I'm glad that we took these actions. I hope that we take more of these in the future. And I'm really happy Talos could play a part of it. Matt, what are your thoughts? I was was taken by the scope of the charges, uh, the number of incidents. I think they they referenced seven different incidents. And the lack of U.S. focus, I thought, was also interesting in that these these were, well, certainly there were some American victims in the not Petia event, when you look like an Olympic destroyer, that's definitely an outside the U.S. sort of event. So it was very interesting that they went went in that direction. And I was happy to see that we had actually pre- like actively investigated three of those seven events, not just the Not Petia one. Well, let's rewind the clock here and dig into some of the research you all have done here, the part that you all played with these uh, with these folks. 
Um, can we sort of go back in time? I and mean, what, what was the first, uh, what's your first recollection of, of these folks popping up on your radar? Well, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that you can share. <laughs> yeah, this is a safe space. It's you, me, and the Cyberwire. Uh, yeah, um, no, I, I would, and Craig, Craig's going to probably panic, but like there was a an interview with an interview candidate um, that we did at RSA a number of years ago, uh, who's you know trying to decide you know whether they go on Craig's team or my team, and we were talking about what their capabilities were, and the candidate asked me, you know, well, if I came to your team, what would you do? And and my response was, you're going to go to Ukraine and you're going to assist them with the difficulties that they're having there. Um, and so we made a determination in the immediate aftermath of the Black Energy attacks that we were going to invest a lot of time and resources in in kind of assisting the Ukraine government in in dealing with the events that they were having and trying to to kind of help them build an efficient and effective defensive strategy in the face of some fairly advanced and persistent actors. Uh, so on the on that list of seven, the the first event that we were involved in was actually the Ukraine Treasury and Finance Ministries. And what was really interesting in those, um, and I think I'm not mixing up. Um, there's there's been a lot that's happened in Ukraine. Um, yeah. One of the interesting in those is that was the first time that we saw them. Um, they they were using um, disk wiper at that point um, to to just, you know, corrupt the disks entirely. Uh, and we were able to de- kind of deploy an effective strategy um, to shield uh, the computers from that using using our FireAmp software. And they were actually, that was the first time we saw them pivot off of the disk wiper stuff to using ransomware as their destructive capability. And, and if I'm remembering correctly, they were actually using normal Petya at that point. Um, in those events, and so it was. It was definitely interesting to kind of see and kind of, kind of recognize that hey, we're dealing with a human adversary here because we're we're defeating them here, and then they're countering with this, and we're having to constantly go back and forth with them. So that was kind of the earliest, you know, pre, you know, the kind of setup, the building of trust between Talos and Cisco and the Ukraine Cyber Police and other Ukraine government entities, so that when not Petya happened. I got a phone call while I was standing in line for Starbucks asking for help instead of me finding mm-hmm. out about it in some other way. Yeah. That international collaboration, I mean, are these, these are not skills that Ukraine had in-house? Uh, no, I think Ukraine is very good at, at international collaboration, uh, if that's the question. Um, I know. I'm, I'm thinking of your specific, in other words, they reach out to your team, to Cisco and to Talos, um, Ukraine did not have their own threat intelligence capability. Your capabilities exceeded their own. I don't. I'm not going to say they exceeded, but they definitely augmented um, and assisted them. Um, they. That's you know. You have to understand that Ukraine is a country that's been embroiled in conflict, and it's also embroiled in like a, a decision about its own future, right? Because it's only very recently that that it has come out from under Russia's control, and so. If you, the fur, and the further you go back, the closer you kind of get to that kind of Maidan Square event where they kind of threw off that Russian control. It was only a few years before before we arrived. And so they're still in, in the process of, of you know, solidifying um, their capabilities in the cyberspace. 
And and I would what I would say is they're very capable um, and and have more experience than just about anybody. Um, but in terms of scope and scale, um, when you're operating it at the kind of scale that we're talking about, it is always useful to have a partner um, when you're working on things. So I don't think that I was ever in a. I, 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 I'll, I'll say it. I was never in a room with um, anyone working on Ukrainian cyber issues in Ukraine where I thought these guys were idiots. Um, right. They were they were keenly aware of what was going on. They knew what they were facing and, and what they were trying to do is assemble all of the available tools and capabilities that they had so that they could best serve the people of Ukraine. I mean, and if you look at that same idea, right, this is why groups like the Cyber Threat Alliance exist. You know, even large commercial companies like all of our peers in the industry we want to work together and it's not for lack of knowledge or ability on the part of any one company. It's just that we're stronger together. Right. And, and I, I mean, I, I mean, it's a really good point that, that you, that Matt brings up, which is, you know, when, when your Ukraine and your next door neighbor is Russia, um, you are going to have good capabilities. You, you must have good capabilities. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they're, they have a functioning society at all in the face of, of what's gone after them um, is a testament to their skill. Well, I mean, let's go through the timeline then. Let's t- walk me down the path after that uh, initial uh, activity uh, with Petio. Where does it lead to next? So, um, so I don't have, I don't remember all seven. But in terms of us, the next thing that that occurred, um, and as Craig rightly points out, in very rapid succession, uh, was first WannaCry, and then not Petio, and then Olympic Destroyer. And so the next the next kind of case was WannaCry. And I only mentioned that real briefly to kind of set up the discussion about NotPetya because WannaCry was like a crazy man on a rampage, right? Like there was no <laughs> there was no sense to what was happening. It was just released and it went bonkers. And it was also between of only WannaCry and NotPetya, the really the only two major international globally impacting all everyone experienced it at the same time sort of events that that i can remember where the the time scale was in terms of hours instead of weeks or months that occurred and so we actually had like i I think our response was very good but in terms of like the sanity of our response we were sort of crazy in the background trying to like handle all the inbound information everybody wanted to help and all the salespeople wanted information all our customers wanted information and we were trading information with with our partners and standing up calls and Craig was telling people, you know, it's not email, everybody settle down. And, you know, it's, it was, it was kind of bonkers. And so we kind of put into place this, uh, an incident response system uh, called uh, tasers that we've only used twice since then. But one of them was in not Petya. And so I got a phone call, uh, like I said, standing in line where the, our Ukrainian sales staff was like, Hey, Ukraine cyber police are experiencing this and they'd like help. We agreed um, very shortly after, there was a tweet from the Ukraine Cyber Police saying we're working with Cisco on this malware event, <laughs> and uh, and also maybe the funniest tweet that I've ever seen from from a country where they were like they had the dog with like fire everywhere, and they're like this is fine. Um, so <laughs> like it's that kind of like very gallows humor sort of a, a thing. right. <laughs> um, so um, we activated our our incident response thing and and which was great because what it allowed us to do is we essentially completely reorganized how Talos is set up. Um, mm-hmm. People that were on Craig's team ended up working under me. Some of our, my capability went over to work under Chris. And we kind of like, if you were doing reverse engineering of any kind, you were under this, this guy. And if you're doing intelligence analysis of any kind, you're under this guy. 
And so temporarily, we kind of re-architected and then had a whole tracking mechanism so that when we came time to communicate with our customers, we had a really cohesive and, and very accurate, this is what has happened and this is what you need to do. And then that was before um, we had the opportunity to get a IR team actually into Kiev and on the premises of Medoc to actually do a forensic analysis of what happened at Medoc, which was the epicenter of NotPetya. And can you give us some insights? I mean, when you get that team over there, when you, when you get, you know, boots on the ground, as it were, I mean, what, what sort of things take place? And what is that process like? Well, what I would say, I would point out that NotPetya is, is thankfully, not the norm, right? The, the, way, the way that all of these kind of things went down is they were very much in and of the moment in kind of like phone calls, offers of assistance, accepted, we went to Ukraine, right? Like, like mm-hmm. there were no salespeople, there was no, you know, <laughs> it was very much like, hey, we're going to be there tomorrow morning, you know, we'll meet you there. So it was, it was crazy in that sense. But it also allowed us to really have the most rapid understanding of what was going on. So it took most of the day for them to do the forensic pulls off of the servers that were affected and kind of interview the Medoc staff and get an understanding of how everything was built, what the inside was. The, the, the on-site team did a great job, but it was well into the evening by the time they had had, had the drives. And so... They actually hosted those drives for us in the U.S. And then, you know, kind of about mid-afternoon our time, we started the forensic analysis. And it was primarily me and a guy who's no longer at Cisco, but who was fundamental to this investigation named Dave Maynard. Um, Mm -hmm. So me and Dave did the forensic analysis and determined how the Russians had breached the breached the the site and had gone into the web servers and had redirected all update traffic to this server in OVH, and that server in OVH was then redirecting back um, um, updates that would then deploy uh, the NotPetya malware. And so we figured that out. I think we figured that out at about three a.m. our time, and then we just stayed up overnight waiting for the sun to come up in Kiev, and had a you know a seven a.m. Kiev time phone call. Where we're like, okay, this is what happened. Um, and then the Ukraine cyber police were free to go forward and do what they needed to do. Can we t- touch on the the human side of this? I mean, you know, you mentioned you know, pulling all-nighters and that sort of thing. I mean, is it a, 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 a fair to say that you, you guys are running on adrenaline, um, probably a fair amount of caffeine as well, but... <laughs> um, are, there, are there concerns of, of, you know, not being at your best when you're running at that pace? Oh, it's a hundred, like, like, yeah. A thousand percent. And, and Craig, I mean, Craig always brings up the, the balance between speed and accuracy, right? And so in what we were doing here, we had to be completely correct. And so uh, I essentially, the way it happened to go down is, is, is I was actually had the server that was, was kind of at the center of it. So I kind of found these error messages that kind of indicated this stuff. I looked up the the manual of, of NGINX to, to kind of figure out what the error messages mean, and they implied this. And so I said, all right, Dave, here's my theory. Um, and Dave was like, yep, that all checks out. Um, and then so we then presented, so, you know, we, we presented to a fresher set of eyes um, in Ukraine that so this is what we think happened, and here is the evidence. Um, mm-hmm. So it was very much, um, and we did this multiple times, it was very much, 
This is where we started. Here are the pieces of evidence. Here's how we tie the evidence together. And this is our conclusion. Um, and that conclusion is held up remarkably well over time. I mean, it's it's fascinating in a way that I, I suppose, I mean, did, did time zones play to your advantage that, you know, while they were sleeping, <laughs> you were able to work and, and vice versa? I don't think I don't think we've ever said time zones have played to our advantage. <laughs> Perhaps I'm overstating it. <laughs> so I, I do understand what you're asking, Dave. My my team yeah. does make use of time zone handoffs pretty frequently. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those things that can help and can hurt. And when we were doing, you know, the events Matt mentioned, not pet yeah, the ones before. My team did work out a system. Where we would have what's called a hot handoff, and I think Matt's team probably does the same thing with a different name, where it's not an email. Right, it's not just a doc you send somebody. It's you get on the phone, you walk them through everything you found, why you believe what you believe, and then they basically go to try and prove your conclusions or not. Because you know, one of the most important things to Talos is that the information that we provide our customers needs to be accurate, so that they can ensure that they're defended properly. And you know, as Matt pointed out, it really bothers me when I see people rush out incorrect assertions because we've seen so many defensive strategies. That didn't help, right? Like when the NHS shut down their email server with, um, you know, not pet yet, there was no reason for that, right? It put customers at risk, it hampered communications, and it didn't do anything because one company wanted to get a notification out quickly. And so that's something that we have strategies in place to prevent and something we take super seriously. And yeah, in those situations, having a global team is definitely useful because it gives you that second string to check your work, to make sure you're right and to help get those communications written so that everyone else can be informed. I have another sort of basic question here. I mean, do you have is there an element where you're dealing with um language barriers? <laughs> I mean, most of the people on my team speak more than one language. I think I think the Americans are probably in the weaker set because we only usually speak one or two. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but everyone in Europe on my team probably speaks more than 4. More than 4? Yeah, we have a lot of people who cross a lot of country lines regularly. It's it's that's fantastic. So I mean, in terms <laughs> of the Ukraine stuff, we we definitely had um, the benefit of having um, uh, Azim Kojavayev, uh on my team, and he's he is um, you know the the child of immigrants, uh, worked at DHS in the Office of Bombing Prevention, um, and came to us with that kind of national security focused background, but is is a fluent Russian speaker. Like you can't tell the difference between Azim and someone off the streets of Moscow. Um, and so while Ukrainians don't always prefer to, to converse in Russian, they're all fluent in Russian. So frequently we had Ukrainians would speak Russian who then translate us to English and then back as their English failed them. And, and I have no Ukrainian to speak of. So, mm. Well, let's move on and, and sort of wrap up our conversation today talking about uh, Olympic Destroyer and Sandworm. Um, what was your involvement with those? Well, Olympic Destroyer is one of the ones that my team found. Um, so after NotPetya, obviously we suspected there would be an increase in similar attacks. And so we went up and set up certain indicators in various systems to look for these attacks. And that's literally how we found Olympic Destroyer was just preventative planning and having the detection technology deployed on our internal systems. Once we found the samples, I think we actually ended up finding them in virus total. We knew it was something new. We had a good idea what it was doing. And 
you know, we started our investigation and we named it and we put our, you know, our write-up out there. Um, and I think we were not only one of the first ones out there, but one of the first ones out there with information that stood up. You know, this was another example of one where there was a ton of bad information. And I think that's one of the reasons this was the most notable. You know, Olympic Destroyer is without a doubt probably the best example of false flags planted in malware. And I would even go to the step of saying these weren't necessarily designed to fool. I mean, they do initially, like at first glance with automated systems. But the deeper you dive into it, it's almost there to um, make a statement as well as fool, right? Like to point out the fact that we're planning a false flag, it's super brazen and it's obviously false. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, take us through then. I mean, what what were the false flags? Um, How did they work and and why were they important? Well, so the initial set that I think jumped out at everyone, and this is one of the sources of the bad intel, were um, some of the embedded credentials in the sample. You know, if you look through just the strings in the file, it makes it look like the network was penetrated previously and that, you know, credentials were embedded in the malware. The malware was actually gathering them as it went and then, compiling them into the binary um, or inserting them is probably the more correct word, which is pretty unusual. Uh, And that's something just, again, to mislead people who were doing IR responses. You know, I I think without a doubt, though, the biggest one was the malware's basic grafting of APT code into the guts of the malware. So like literally it had like vestigial non-functional pieces of other malware's code embedded in the body And really the only reason this is in there that we could come up with is that it's fooling automatic detection systems and sending the message that we did this on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And and so to give you a concrete example, you know, everyone's, I think, familiar with Eternal Blue at this point, right? It was a, a Windows exploit that was stolen from the National Security Organization and they had embedded the code from Eternal Blue from the, uh, that actual set of attack into the malware and it actually did nothing. It wasn't active. There wasn't enough stub in there to do anything other than just fool some, you know, binary comparison tools. But it was enough for Microsoft to actually initially tweet that they saw it in there. And, uh, you know, of course we reached out to them. We work very closely with Microsoft. They're one of our, you know, good buddies in the threat intel space. And once we shared our information with them, they corrected that message immediately. But, the fact that it was in there well enough to fool people at first glance uh, is interesting. And I think that's why this is in there. I mean, this is a really important thing to consider, right? Because a lot of companies get hung up on attribution. The reality, though, is computer code isn't really like a fingerprint, right? Computer code mm-hmm. is out there for everyone to see. Everyone can get a literal exact copy. So it's... You know, you're trying to base the uniqueness of something off of something that you can literally make an exact copy of and put anywhere you want. And, you know, Matt and I have written, I don't know, two or three posts on this, right? We had Matt's great post on, uh, what was it, on conveying confidence. And then we had one on attribution of puzzle by uh, Warren and Paul. Um, And the overall theme of these is that if you only have network or malware data on a threat, it's really not enough to confidently do attribution. You know, um, you need that backing of a traditional intelligence apparatus. And so one of the exercises that we did in the attribution of puzzle post 
was that we took the assertion from, I believe it was NSA and GCHQ on a malware sample. And then we went back like a year later and looked at all the available public information and could we reach that assertion? And we couldn't. And so our overall conclusion was that, look, while attribution is important, you know, for a, a variety of reasons, it's important that folks realize that you're probably not going to be able to get there with just internet-based intelligence. You're going to need the support of law enforcement and that traditional intelligence apparatus to get there, or you know, your conclusions should be looked at pretty closely. Can we just touch on some of the incentives here? I mean, Craig, you you mentioned and Matt pointed out, you know, how how for you it's very important that things be correct rather than necessarily fast. Um, it seems to me like there are powerful incentives to be first, to get information out there, to to be fast, that, that organizations get rewarded for that, um, even if they have to go make corrections later. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Am, am, am I, first of all, is my thinking along the, the, right, uh, the right lines? Oh, and to be clear... We want to be correct and first. Yes. <laughs> I see. <laughs> that's, that's our goal. Um, All right. <laughs> I think for our customers, that is what they need to look for, right? And, you know, I would love to say, oh, they should keep a literal scorecard and check off boxes. But <laughs> yeah, that's obviously not something that people are going to do. So I think you just need to realize who are the reliable sources of intel and what conclusions are they reaching and when there's a situation like this where one company does make that first statement, just read it carefully and read it from a critical standpoint and see if it makes sense, see if the information is supported by other sources. And if there are conclusions that are not supported by other sources, you need to start looking for them and you need to maybe consider that before you take action. You know, there are going to be people who have the information first. That always happens. Right. But mm-hmm. if you're making a critical decision based off information that only one person says is true, you need to consider that while you take that action and make sure that you're not potentially hampering your response. Yeah. Good to have a reputation to be a voice of reason, I suppose. I mean, we try. Matt's yeah. always the responsible kid in the room. <laughs> mm, always is pretty strong language. <laughs> Well, Jen, I mean, Jens, let, let's wrap it up here. I mean, in terms of, you know, looking back again, you know, using these indictments uh, of these Russian operators as sort of an excuse to uh, to look back, to look through things on that lens. I mean, what are, what are some of the overarching lessons here as, as you look back on these campaigns and the research that you did with them? How do they inform what you guys are doing moving forward? Oh, boy. Um, well, I will go with my easy answer, then let Matt have the hard one. You know, To me, the takeaway from this and prior campaigns is that malware actors learn from each other, right? Uh, We knew when we saw the SamSam campaign years before this that a wiper malware-based worm was possible and coming. We warned people for years before WannaCry happened that this was coming. I think it was like two years, literally. We knew it was happening. It was obvious it was going to happen. And then it happened. And then people had another month. And then they still didn't patch. And then NotPetya happened. So I I think my point with that statement is that the time folks had to address vulnerabilities is shrinking. The amount of time between horrible campaigns and ones that aren't as bad is shrinking because bad guys are learning from each other. And if there's one method that works better than others to get either the reaction you want or the profit that you want, that's the avenue being pursued. 
Matt, what are your thoughts? I think people should take the opportunity to look at Sandworm and understand that that's what we mean when we're talking about an APT actor. It's also kind of a a great example of the risks of supply chain attacks. It's also a great example of actors living off the land or using previously known vulnerabilities. It, with with NotPetya, you need to remember that Sandworm's working for the Russian government. The Russian government is telling Sandworm, these are your objectives. And our assessment is that in NotPetya, the, the directive was, I want you to punish Ukraine and those people that choose to do business with Ukraine. And to solve that ask, they discovered that there was attack software that most people who do business with Ukraine uses, that they were able to breach that software, that that software had automated updates, that that software could be modified without being detected and then distributed. So essentially they were using Medoc as a malware distribution center for months before this came. They generated a list of every entity doing business with Ukraine using the tax ID numbers, and they were able to cross-reference those tax ID numbers with strings that said this is who they are. So they had an absolute list of who would be affected, and then they chose to execute NotPetya and designed it in a way that would limit it to the affected parties, but would spread incredibly rapidly. So they were able to do exactly what they were tasked to do. They knew exactly what would happen when they executed on it, and they executed on it even though they knew what the outcome was going to be. Um, and that's, that's when, when I talk about APT, and, and I have a pretty high bar, that's what I'm talking about. Most of what we see on a day-to-day basis, even the, the really serious ransomware stuff we see, is not APT-level work. This is what I'm calling APT-level work. Our thanks to Craig Williams and Matt Olney from Cisco Talos for joining us. You can find more about their NotPetya and Olympic Destroyer research on their blog. It's blog.talosintelligence.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Listener.